So for the kids, I got a question for you. When that prodigal son went home, did he get a lecture? Did he, was, he, was he condemned? Or was he welcomed home? Which one was it? He was welcomed home, that's right. Isn't that amazing? That that's how God is with us. Instead of condemning us when we've gone off his path, when we come back to him, we say we're sorry. He welcomes us home with a party. Isn't that amazing? That is how, that is how loving God is. And so no matter what happens in your life, no matter how far off the road you go, know that you can always go home to God and he will welcome you with a party and not a lecture. Isn't that awesome? All right, let's pray as we enter God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your heart, that no matter how far off the road we've gone, a repentant heart that truly is, is sorry for what we have done, no matter what, when we come home to you, we will not find condemnation. We will not even find a lecture. Instead, we will find a welcome, an embrace, and a welcome home. And, and even you will throw a party for the one that was lost. And so we thank you, Lord, that this is your heart and that we can come to you knowing that you are a good father who welcomes us. And so, Father, as we enter your word today, this beautiful chapter in Romans 8, we pray that you would open it to our hearts, to our minds, and that we could receive it as from you. We pray, Lord, that you would um, anoint it with your, your power and that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you will remember way back in the year 1992 when the Los Angeles riots took place. Those riots were notorious for widespread violence, clashes between protesters and police, arson, and looting. During all of the mayhem of the riots in L.A. in 1992, in amongst all of it was an unsuspecting truck driver named Reginald Denny, and he unwittingly ended up trying to take a shortcut through a neighborhood to where he was headed with his, with his big rig, and he ended up driving unwittingly into an area that had the worst of the rioting taking place. And as it so happened, millions of people ended up watching on live TV as a news helicopter flew high overhead recording the scene below for a national audience. After forcing the truck to come to a stop, the rioters then smashed the window of Reginald Demi's truck with a brick. They then pulled Reginald from his cab, dragging him to the ground below. They then proceeded to mercilessly throw bricks at him, beat him with a, with a broken bottle, and kick him in the face until he went unconscious. It was savage, the attack. Now somehow Denny lived through this attack. And later, when the case finally came to court, the men who had beaten him were hardened and belligerent. They seemed completely unrepentant for what they had done. No signs of remorse. Once again, the media was filming live as they panned the courtroom scene. Reginald Denny's face, even many months later, was still swollen and disfigured from the merciless beating that he had received. The nation then watched as Denny got up out of his seat, Against the protest of his attorneys, he walked across the courtroom over to the mothers of his assailants. He then proceeded to hug each one of them as he told them that he forgave their sons for what they had done to him. 
The tearful mothers returned his hugs, and one of the mothers even told him she loved him. Now, whether or not Reginald Denny's actions had any effect on his attackers or on their attitudes, we do not know. But what we do know is that neither their violent actions nor their belligerent attitudes were deserving of forgiveness. What they deserved that day was condemnation. But instead, what they received was grace. Grace. That's what this passage is all about. It's all about grace, which leads us into our first point from this text. Point number one is this. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Let's read Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, just as the attackers of Reginald Denny did not deserve forgiveness or even ask for it, yet despite the terrible things they had done to him, Reginald freely offered them forgiveness anyways. It was not asked, yet it was freely given. So we see they did not get the condemnation they deserved. Instead, they got the pardon that they did not deserve. You see, condemnation is the exact opposite of justification. Now, if you've been following along in this series, I hope you already have it hit, hit home in your mind what justification means and is. Does anyone know off the top of their heads what's the definition of justification? Someone? Anyone? That's right. It's just as if we never sinned because God has declared us not guilty. We are justified, not guilty. So, so pure, so clean. It's just as if we never sinned. And so this legal term means that in Christ we are now faultless to stand before the throne of God, Thessalonians says, without spot or blemish. That's how pure, that's how complete the justification is. Now, in much the same way that those men attacked Reginald Denny, the world attacked Jesus Christ. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because their own hearts were wrong. Their own hearts were filled with hate, and so they betrayed him, slandered him, tortured him, mocked him, disfigured him, and finally killed him. Yet even as they did so, what was Jesus' prayer from the cross? Father, condemn them. Father, send them to hell. No, those were not his words. His words from the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What they deserved, what they most certainly deserved, was condemnation. They were killing the Prince of Glory, the Son of God. If anyone deserved hell, it was them. And yet Jesus spoke words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. For you see, long before we, we ever even thought about seeking God, long before we ever thought about trying to make things right between us and him, God was already seeking us. God was already searching for us. Like we saw in the video, the, the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. God was the one initiating the search, not us. 
And he was not initiating the search to condemn us and to lecture us and finally destroy us under the wrath that we deserve. Instead, he was seeking us out, searching for us to extend pardon and to then reconcile us to himself, put the lamb on his shoulders and carry us home. In Colossians 1 verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul wrote, Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. You know what? If, if, if the whole list was laid bare of my life, there's plenty of grounds to accuse me on and they'd be, they'd be right. And I wouldn't have a defense. But here God's word is saying, because of Christ, we are even free from accusation. Guess who's the accuser in the Bible? Who's named the accuser? You know, it's Satan. Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He loves to come before God's throne if he's given any chance and accuse us. We see him doing that with Job in the, in the beginning of the book of Job. He says, yeah, you think he's so great, but let me at him and I'll show you. He'll curse you to your face. And so we see Satan is wanting to bring accusation against us. And if we look at our lives, we say he has grounds for it. But this is how thoroughly the justification has taken place. Our sin is so dealt with that when he says, look what Danny Greening did again, if it's under the blood, God says what? He's spotless in my sight because he's in Christ. Isn't that incredible? This is what he's done for us. Earlier in Romans 5 verses 6 and 8, Paul wrote, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ did not die for a single godly person. Not one. Because there wasn't one. There was no one truly godly before him. Yes, the, the, we look at the Old Testament patriarchs. In faith, it was counted to them as righteousness. But we know that that was still looking ahead in faith to Christ. Without Christ, their, Job's righteousness, Abraham's righteousness, without Christ's finished work, it would mean nothing. The culmination all came to Jesus' act upon the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now make no mistake who this verse is referring to. It's referring to us, you and I. Because we are the sinners. We are the ungodly. We are the enemies of God. We are the ones who are completely undeserving of anything other than God's wrath. That is the we in this statement. We are the enemies. And yet here we see that it is we who Christ Jesus died to save, pardon, redeem, justify, sanctify, and will yet glorify in God's presence forever. And this, my friends, is grace. This is grace, not getting the condemnation that we so richly deserve, but instead receiving the full pardon that we certainly do not deserve. And this is why we call grace amazing. 
because it truly is amazing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you get nothing else from this message today, I want you to get this from it. There is no condemnation on your account. None. If you are in Christ, you are free and clear entirely, completely, because no and none means exactly that. No condemnation. Go home knowing you are free and clear. There is no wrath upon you. Only grace. That is good news. That's why we call it the gospel. The gospel of God's grace. This is wonderful news, my friends. Now we go on to our second point from this text. Grace sets us free from the yoke of the law and into the freedom of the Spirit. Grace sets us free from the yoke of the law and into the freedom of the Spirit. Verse 2. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the following true story. A vagrant lives near the Fulton Fish Market on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The slimy smell of fish carcasses and entrails nearly overpowers him, and he hates the trucks that noisily arrive before sun, sunrise. Early one morning, when the workers are slinging eel and halibut off the trucks, yelling to each other in Italian, the vagrant rouses himself and pokes through the dumps, dumpsters behind the tourist restaurants, looking for his first meal. When he's going through the remains of what's in the dumpster, he sees a ticket from last week's lottery lying in a pile of wilted lettuce. He almost lets it go by. But by force of habit, he picks it up and jams it in his pocket. In the old days, when luck was better, he used to buy one ticket a week, never more. It's past noon when he remembers the ticket stub and holds it up to the newspaper box to compare the numbers. Three numbers match, then a fourth, then a fifth, then he can't believe it. All seven. It can't be true. Things like this don't happen to someone like him. Bums don't win the New York lottery. But it is true. He checks and rechecks the numbers. Later that day, he's squinting into the bright lights as television crews present the newest media darling. The unshaven, baggy-pants vagrant who will receive a whopping $243,000 per year for 20 years. A chic-looking woman wearing a leather miniskirt shoves a microphone in his face and asks him, How do you feel? He stares back, dazed. It has been a long time, a very, very long time, since anyone has spoken to him, let alone asked him the question, How do you feel? He feels like a man who has been to the edge of starvation and back, and is beginning to fathom that he will never feel hunger ever again. What did that beggar do to deserve receiving several million dollars? What did he do? Absolutely nothing. He didn't even buy the winning ticket. He just found it. All he did was pick it up, cash it, and receive his reward. Someone else had thrown it away thinking it was useless, but he saw its potential worth. He had not worked for a long time. He did not earn the money. The check was given to him as a free gift without conditions. He did not have a job or an education. He did not have to do anything but accept the check. 
You see, having a relationship with God does not depend on how well we do or how hard we work or how perfect we think we are or aren't. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Our relationship with God is based solely on the mercy and grace extended to us. And this is good news for us failures. Because remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul has already established that well in the earlier chapters of Romans. We don't need to remake the case that all of us are failures in God's sight. All of us have fallen short of his glory. We have all failed. None of us are worthy. And so this is good news for us failures because we read in the book of Titus, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Not because of righteous things we had done. And so here we see the the yoke of the law has, has been entirely removed. Because you see, it is the Holy Spirit who has the power to do what the law cannot. For the law has only the power to condemn us. And we've already seen that many times in our, in our series in Romans, how the law's main role and the law's main power is to reveal our sin. Like a mirror, we look in it and we see how far we, we fall short of the perfection of God's law. It's so demanding. But the Spirit then comes and ushers into our lives a new power that is greater than the law and sets us free to live fully for God, not under the yoke of the law, but in the freedom of the Spirit. I want you to think of it like this. The law of sin is like the law of gravity. Okay, so the law of gravity, we're all under its effects right now, and it's what's keeping us down on the ground. Now, in contrast, the law of the Spirit is like the law of lift. Now, who here has flown in an airplane before? Probably most of you have. So you've all experienced a law greater than the law of gravity. How does this work? Well, the law of lift, in in which um, Newton, of course, is is the forerunner of establishing all of these things, within it, it states that the air pressure under an airfoil, or a wing, The the pressure under it must exert an equal and opposite upward force to overcome the law of gravity pushing down on it. So from above, you've got gravity pushing down on the wing. From below, with speed, of course, you've got a thrust in there, and you're going forward. It's creating pressure under the wing, which finally becomes greater than the pressure on top of the wing, and voila, magic, we lift off the ground. And, And such a breakthrough this is, this law is so powerful that... Probably most of us present here today and many of you listening will have used this greater law to have not only crossed continents, but oceans in mere hours. Incredible. Go back uh, 150 years and tell this to our ancestors that we figured out how to overcome the law of gravity and we can cross oceans in hours. They would have just not believed it. They they couldn't have fathomed some, some sort of breakthrough like that. And yet this is a great picture Of what the Spirit does. Because the law is so oppressive. It pushes down on us all the time. And we think there's nothing greater than this. It's so powerful. It's going to keep us down all the time. But in the same way, Paul is saying that the law of the Spirit of life is setting us free from that law of sin and death. That kept us down. 
And the new law sets us free so completely that we can now soar with Christ. And this means we have the freedom to love him fully, serve him joyfully, and obey him gladly. Not because it's some heavy burden. No, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because the Spirit empowers it. And so we love him and we serve him and we obey him in the power of the Spirit, not in the gritting our teeth of trying to keep the law. We don't do this now because we have to earn his grace. We do this now because we have already received his grace. Philip Yancey writes, Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. The guilt and condemnation is gone. And therefore a settled peace comes upon our hearts as we realize we don't have to strive anymore to gain God's approval, to gain his acceptance. We already have it. We have it in full through Christ. Our relationship with God is not based upon how good we are, but upon the character of a gracious and forgiving God who loves us more than we can possibly understand. So now we go to our third point. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, no one seems to know who to give credit for for first coming up with this acronym, but if you write it down on your notes, write down God's riches at Christ's expense, and then circle the first letter of each one of those words. God's G riches are at a Christ C expense E, and what do you have? What word does that spell? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Romans 8 verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Now let me ask you, what was Christ's expense? What did it cost Jesus to take on the likeness of sinful man and to be made a sin offering in our place? What was the personal price that he had to pay? Philippians 2 verses 6 and 8 tells us what it cost Christ. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to cling to, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So remember that though God's gift of grace is free, it is not cheap. If you remember that back from Romans 6, God's gift of grace to us is free, but it is not cheap. For the Lord Jesus willingly laid down his divinity. Remember, he's the prince of glory, the the bright morning star shining in glory in all radiance that would cause us, if we saw him for one second, like John in the book of Revelation, to fall flat on our faces before him. This is who we're talking about. And he set that aside and he clothed himself in human likeness. In every way, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to even the point of death and death upon a cross. This is what Christ's expense was. God's riches at Christ's expense. And now fourthly, 
Grace means that sin stands condemned, not us. Sin stands condemned, not us. Read again verse 3 right through to the end. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. I want to underline that last line for you. He condemned sin in sinful man. Look at the contrast now between verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here he says, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. So do you see the switch that's taken place here? There's, there's been a complete paradigm shift. Some might even call this poetic justice. For you see, before Christ, it was our sin that condemned us. But now God has made a way that our sin can be so thoroughly dealt with that it is now sin itself that stands condemned by God. So now because our sin is condemned, verse 4 states that the outcome for us is this. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Sin is condemned, not us. And the outcome is our righteousness. So friends, listen to this. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then this applies to you. This applies to you, completely righteous. Now you might say, Tanny, you don't know what I was doing just this morning. My thoughts were all over the place. I, just to get here this morning, I was... You know, the cold, I was muttering under my breath, I had impure thoughts, I was maybe a couple of letters uh, in, in my vocabulary, colorful words that I shouldn't have said. How could you say that I am completely righteous? Well, it's not me saying it. It's God's word saying it. That if you are in Christ, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in you. Fully met. Did you earn that? We've already talked about that. Nope, you didn't earn it. Did, did you do anything to contribute to this outcome? No, nothing. You contributed nothing. Jesus did everything. And it's the only way. If we were to add one, if, if salvation was 99% Jesus and 1% us, do you think we'd be saved? Do you think we could contribute 1% of our salvation, if 1% depended on us, I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, I'd mess up that 1%. If it was up to me to, to contribute 1% to my salvation, I would be lost. And that's what God's word is telling us. It's all Christ or it's nothing. He does it all. Our righteousness is completely his work, and it's then given to us by grace through faith. Now, my friends, if that doesn't make you just shake your head and say, wow, like, me, righteous? If that doesn't just leave you astonished, then nothing will. Nothing will. Because what else can we say about God's grace except, wow? It seems too good to be true, and yet it is true. It is the truth that changes everything. And now on to our fifth and final point. The gift of grace must be received. The gift of grace must be received. We jump ahead in this passage to Romans 8 
and verse 9. And here Paul states, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, this is a very sobering statement. This is Paul's way of of throwing something into this passage to get the, the reader to really sit up and pay attention. There's an if statement in here. And by this, Paul is reminding us that God's grace is not given to us by default. It is not imposed upon us against our will. Instead, God's gift of grace must be received by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, I can hold out to you the greatest gift in the world, but if you don't receive it, it is never yours. Just like the, the vagrant in New York City, that, the, that lottery ticket he picked up, if he didn't go and cash it, that money would not be his. If like the person before him, he looked at it, held it in his hand, yes, by all merits, it was the winning numbers, but if he'd thrown it back in the dumpster, would that money have been his? No, it would not. It has to be received. There's a true story told of a man named George Wilson, a career criminal who in the 1830s was indicted on six counts of obstructing and robbing the U.S. mail, including threatening a carrier with bodily harm and violent assault. Now, in those days, the violent assault conviction carried a death penalty. Now, rising public uh, opposition against the death penalty for anything less than murder was Uh, ratcheting up in the United States and there was a lot of pressure being put on the courts and upon the president to revoke this sentence of death. And so as the case began to get more publicity, it came to then President Andrew Jackson's desk. And finally, having reviewed the case and the situation, he believed that it did not warrant a death sentence, what this man, George Wilson, had done. And so he issued a presidential pardon for the assault conviction. Then, to everyone's utter astonishment, upon being given the pardon, Wilson declined to receive it. He stated he wanted no special considerations for what he had done. He would accept the consequences in full. No one could dissuade him. Everyone was astonished. The pardon had been issued, but he would not receive it. Well, what would the courts do? The district court did not know how to handle this. No one had ever experienced someone refusing a pardon before. And eventually, the matter was referred to the U.S. Supreme Court, which finally ruled that, quote, A pardon is an act of grace, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. A pardon is an act of grace, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it upon him. Further, Chief Justice Marshall pronounced that the value of a pardon must be determined by the recipient. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. And he said, therefore, George Wilson must die. And having rejected his free presidential pardon, That's exactly what happened as George Wilson was subsequently executed by hanging. Now, it's shocking to think that in real history, someone refused a pardon that would have saved their life. 
But this is exactly what he did. And we ask, who in their right mind would reject such a pardon? We would assume, as the Supreme Court did, that no person condemned to death would reject such a pardon. And yet, spiritually, it happens every single day. A free pardon has been, has been passed. It has been given in full. Every last man, woman, and child on planet Earth, their name is written in the line, covered by the blood, pardoned in every single way. Christ paid it all. He died for the sins of the world. But that pardon has no value for the person unless it is received. And no power in court or God himself will force it upon us. It must be received freely just as it was freely given. It is not complete without acceptance. It makes me wonder how many people in our world right now today are allowing God's pardon to pass without receiving it. So my friends, listen. First thing I'm going to say is this. The most important thing that you can ever do in this life, the most important is to make certain that you have received God's pardon. That you have received it. That free gift of grace by faith alone in Christ alone. You haven't added anything to it. All you have said is, I believe and I receive it. And that's it. Make sure you've done that. That is the most important thing. And the second most important thing that you can ever do in this life is like the first. If you have received this pardon and the Spirit of Christ now lives in you, then tell someone else. Tell someone else. Tell as many other people as you possibly can. However many years God gives you, if you have received his pardon, the second most important thing you can ever do is help others to receive this same pardon because it is the game changer for this life and for the next life to come. Find ways to bring the good news of this gospel to the world who desperately needs it. And if they choose, like this man, to reject it, that is on them. It is not on you. Because so long as we are holding out the good news of the gospel, by God's grace and by the work of the Spirit, there will be those who see it for what it is and receive it for themselves. And so this is our calling. If we, have, if we now stand in God's grace, let us be the agents of God's grace to hold it out to others who also need it just as badly as we do. Let Paul's life motto that we read way back in Romans 1 become our own. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. It is so rich. It is so beautiful. Incredibly for us, it is so free. It is your reward at Christ's expense. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you so willingly set aside your divinity to take on human flesh, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we could be pardoned, so that we could be set free, so that Paul could boldly declare that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you for it because you first loved us and you've given us this pardon so rich and free that we just marvel at the beauty of what we have received. And so, Father, I pray 
For anyone listening today, whether in person or or later on the internet, Father, we pray that if there's anyone who realizes that they have not yet received this gift of grace, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to their heart and mind right now, Lord, to know that today can be the day that they receive your pardon in full, that no condemnation will rest upon them, and that instead they can live free in the freedom of the Spirit in this life and for eternal life to come. And Father, now for all of us who have received this gift, I pray that the beauty of it would stir our hearts again, that there would be true gratitude for what you've done for us, and that this in turn, Lord, would stir a true desire to see this most precious gift extended to others, that they too can receive your pardon, and that they too can live with you today and for eternity. And so we pray, Lord, let this message go out with power, that we would never be ashamed of your gospel, for it is the power of God unto our salvation and to everyone who believes. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.